Oops. Well, hey everyone, good morning and welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I am one of the pastors here uh, at Res City. Um, and uh, we're about to hop into our message this morning. Uh, I'm going to be, as you can see on the screen here, we're going to be actually starting a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm going to set it up here in just a sec. Uh, but let me, let me pray for us here first and then we'll, we'll get into it all, Lord. Lord, we thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather in your presence, to worship together, um, to learn from your word, God, and to uh, learn what it means to be uh, set apart and to be people uh, of you, God. That's what we're talking about today. I pray that you just help us to do that. Help our interactions with one another today to be holy. Um, help our worship to be holy. Um, help our, our, our time in your presence, God, to be holy. All of it, Lord. We just ask for you to be with us and to set this time apart. Uh, for your glory, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we don't, you know, we don't typically do series off the cuff. Like, we don't do things at random. We actually usually have kind of a, a, a plan. Uh, and we talk about it as a leadership team about, like, what kind of stuff we want to be going through as a church. And there's a kind of a flow that kind of typically plays out over a year. Um, and that's true of this series, our, our study in 1 Corinthians. So well, what we've studied so far this year, if you remember, if you've kind of been with us, uh, we've, we, walked, we did a series called Walking by the Spirit, talking about the Spirit of God and what it looks like to uh, really be in God's presence and to walk with God's Spirit, to know what it means to follow Him well uh, in that way. We, we talked about sin. We actually kind of dove into the ugly topic and messiness of a world that has been intruded upon and is under the power of sin, and we just really wanted to grapple with that. And then we just finished up a series we called According to Grace, um, where we, uh, we looked at what does it mean for us to be people who experience and understand God's grace and live it out in our day-to-day lives, um, as we see it uh, as something that's given to us by God and then as something that flows out of us uh, to the people around us. And what we want to do this summer is actually want to kind of combine the three previous series into like a case study. Um, where we're taking what we've been meditating on for the last few months um, and asking ourselves, what does it look like when we seriously see this applied into a group of people, both good and bad? Um, and so I think that's what the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place where we uh, take the truths of the gospel, the things that we talk about, the doctrines, um, and we actually see them come to life in a group of people. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser is a... Is a um, a New Testament, um, or no, he's a systematic theologian, I believe. And he says, he has this great quote, I, th- I think, where he says, the church is less the cradle of Christian theology than its crucible. It's the place where the community's understanding of faith is lived, tested, and reformed. So what he's saying is that the church isn't supposed to be a place where we just get together and we kind of talk about ideas about God, right? We learn them, we memorize them, we talk about you know, what it must mean. We try to, you know, learn doctrines and things like that. It, it is that, but that's not just what the church is supposed to be. I think we miss that a lot of times. The church is supposed to be a place where we take all the stuff that we believe about God, that we're convicted is true about Him and the world, and we put them into practice. And we look to see, did, does this produce life and if not, are, we have to reform ourselves and ask if we're truly understanding God and Jesus, okay? And so what we're doing this summer is we're taking some of these ideas that we talked about the last few months, and we're going to actually put them into a church context, and we're going to ask ourselves, what does it look like to see this stuff lived out? And so what we're calling this sermon series is Becoming Who We Are, 
a case study in 1 Corinthians. Now, I'm going to explain in depth why we're, we're calling this series Becoming Who We Are as, as the sermon goes along, but let's kind of work our way into it, okay? So, without further ado, let's just get into it. Now, 1 Corinthians, it's a letter in, in, in the New Testament. Uh, it's written by the Apostle Paul, who's a very influential figure um, in the early church, written likely to a kind of a house church network that was in the, the ancient city of Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece now. Um, and actually, there's a second letter in the New Testament called uh, 2 Corinthians, and as you can guess, it's kind of a sequel to 1 Corinthians. And really, I think what is so interesting about those two letters, it is, it's kind of the story of a church, and I think that is so helpful for us to dig into because that's what we are. We're a church, right? And it's a lot more easily, it's, it's very practical, I think, for us to kind of study uh, those letters. Um, and so what we're going to do this summer is we're going to study that first one. Um, and we're going to, what I want to do today is I want to start by reading the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to talk a little bit about some background and some issues that are addressed in the letter And then what we're going to do is we're going to go back and make some observations and applications off of the passage to kind of frame the whole series, try to set everything up for us to kind of walk the rest of the summer through this, okay? So sound good? Awesome. Let's get into it. Let me read 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 1 to 16. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Sosthenes. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God, to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts that he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God has enriched your church in every way with all your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. This confirms that what I told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius for now. No one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else. I love that parenthetical. I think that's really funny, actually. (laughs) All right, so anyway, whenever we read a book of the Bible, um, we need to understand that we are being transported uh, to another time and another culture and another situation. In order to be good readers, you think of like playing catch, right? We have to set ourselves up well to catch the ball that is being thrown to us, okay? And with letters like this, what we're hearing is kind of like one uh, side of a phone call, right? Which gives us some information, but also leaves some guesswork and some gray, okay? And that's kind of what's going on in 1 Corinthians, is we're getting one side of the phone call, 
Paul's side. We're not totally sure what's going on in the Corinthian side, so we have to do some guesswork uh, to figure it out there. And what we hear here is that Paul, we hear, it's like we hear Paul saying something about, on his side of the phone, about divisions in the church, right? So right off the bat, we find out there's apparently some division going on. People are attaching themselves to different leaders and fighting over it. Okay, but as you keep reading the book of 1 Corinthians, if this is a letter you're familiar with, you know that like things just keep popping up. Like it's not like this is the only issue. There's all sorts of different things. And it seems like Paul's on the phone and keeps kind of switching the conversation topic seemingly at random, right? So either there is just a bunch of really random issues and Paul's just working through a checklist or there's one iceberg that lies beneath the surface of all these smaller issues, Okay? And what I want us to do in this series is to really try to understand what the iceberg is throughout it all. Because I think that's where we're going to get the most out of the letter. Okay? So here's some background on the, on the church in Corinth. Um, it was planted by Paul, um, kind of a church plant like us in, in a lot of ways. And you can actually read that story in Acts 18. Um, and in the meantime, okay, Paul had come, he'd stayed there for, for a season, and then he'd left to go start some more churches, and he left some kind of people who were part of that congregation initially in charge. Okay, that's kind of Paul's pattern. At some point during his absence, possibly during a long stay in the city of Ephesus in Acts 19, Paul receives a troubling letter uh, from, from a few people in the congregation, and he even has some people from Corinth come and kind of give him a little bit more information on what's going on. Okay? So it's kind of like Paul had left the room for a bit, thinking everything was fine, but when he came back, he saw that everything was on fire. All right, if you guys have seen the show Community, you remember this scene. It's kind of like, here's Paul. He's walking back into this room, and he's like, what happened while I was gone here, guys? Our best guess is that there was this underlying issue, uh, something having to do with social, sexual, and spiritual problems that were, what they're doing is probably pitting a, a group of supposedly enlightened people or, and some elites against some supposedly unenlightened or non-elite people in the community. And it seems like a lot of scholars agree that there's a small group of people with significant status, both socially and spiritually, who had a sort of disproportionate influence on the church. And it's generally thought that these people were self-styled spirit people. It's actually what they probably called themselves, spiritual people. And they were very enamored with displays of powerful speech, whether that was in preaching or in speaking in tongues. And what this led them to do was exploit social differences, compete against each other for honor. There were scandals. There was infighting. The, the church gatherings would get turned into anything but worship services of Jesus and more. Okay? So it's a lot of stuff. Unfortunately, it's not that foreign, right, for churches to deal with these kinds of issues. But we have to ask the question, how does something like this happen in a church? I think that's kind of where Paul's at, right? He's walked back into the room, he sees it's on fire, and he's wondering, how did this fire get started, right? This didn't bubble up uh, from nowhere. And it, it probably had a lot to do with where the Corinthians lived, okay? So this is a quote from a scholar named Michael Gorman kind of commenting on what it would be like for a church to be in the city of Corinth. He says, the trip to Corinth is not for every man, observed several ancient travelers. Corinth had a reputation for trouble, and it was even the namesake for a verb. To become Corinthianized meant something like to become thoroughly immoral and materialistic. Although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. 
Okay, so here's what this means. This group of people, they would get together, they operated as a church, and they would do Christian things together, right? They'd gather together, they'd take communion, they'd have a church service of some kind. They even had gifts from the Spirit, okay? The Spirit was operating in their midst. They were doing things like speaking in tongues, doing healings, all that kind of stuff. But they were doing all of it with a distinctively Corinthian mindset. Now, if you look around all churches or all all Christians, I think that you could say the same thing about them a lot of times. There is an inordinate amount of blank that exists in them. Now, what that is is going to vary all across the board, right? It could be an inordinate amount just of general American culture. It could be the Twin Cities. It could be New York Times or, or Fox News, right? It could be Netflix or TikTok or the culture of their work, whatever it is, an inordinate amount of whatever place that is surrounded by us oftentimes exists within us or in our churches, right? And this isn't something I think that we should be super afraid of admitting, Sometimes there actually can be some good things we can take from the culture around us, and we're all like this. It's kind of human. But what we have to do is have a, a present mindset that wherever, whatever we're in proximity to is going to chisel away at us in some way or another. And some of what chisels away at us will not lead us in the path of Christ. And when we're unaware of that, there can be some sort of, I think, disastrous consequences to that. All right, so let me give you an example of something that we all do regularly, probably, or at least most of us do regularly, that can have a big influence on us. Um, There's actually been research done on the effects of entertainment media like TV or movies on our views of the world, okay? Particularly when it comes to political views, which really just means everything, since everything is very politicized in America, right? And so some work done by a guy named Anthony Grzynski. He's a political scientist. He does political science at the University of Vermont. And he argues that the content that people consume for fun plays a serious role in their attitudes about things like social justice, crime and reform, um, tolerance and diversity, the benefits of or dangers of technology, the characteristics of leadership, all these different things. What we're taking into us is going to have an influence on us. And so you think this just might be a nice way to relax, a nice fun way to relax at the end of the day, when in reality it might be doing something to you as you do it. Okay? Now, I love TV. I just used a meme from one of my favorite TV shows to make a point. Okay? It's something we all do, but when we're not aware or thoughtful about what we're taking in, it can have a sort of influence on us. Right? And, and Gierzynski argues that it's actually a more potent agent of political and worldview learning than like, overt attempts at doing it, like a speech or a sermon or reading a book, okay? This actually does more to influence how we view the world than those things, okay? And he used the TV show, it, it, the Game of Thrones, as an example, okay? It's the very, one of the most popular shows in the history of television. Um, now, if you've watched Game of Thrones, you pro- or even if you haven't watched Game of Thrones, you probably know one thing about it. Um, it's really a show about how good hardly ever triumphs over evil, Okay? I mean, it's about how other good guys keep dying off. That's why a lot of people kept watching this show, because they wanted to see which good guy was going to get killed next, I think. Um, the villains typically triumph in this show. And the good characters in the show are often swallowed up in their attempts to do good by becoming bad guys themselves or just kind of ending up as losers. Right. So again, if you are familiar with the show, Daenerys Targaryen is an example of that first one. And um, Ned Stark is an example of that second one. Just think about their fates. These are two of the best or good characters in the show. But if you know how it ends, you know kind of which way it goes. 
Now, Gerzinski points out that seeing the world as very unjust, which is definitely a worldview of the show Game of Thrones, will influence someone to see their world as highly unjust and become very skeptical that good will triumph over evil in their day-to-day lives or in the world around them. Now, when you watch a show like that and you are really drawn into it and it it is influencing you in ways that you don't realize, you are subtly being influenced to start to think the world around you is unjust and that good never truly wins. Okay? And you're going to see what's happening in Game of Thrones all around you, in your neighborhood, in, your polit- in the politics of the world, in your church even maybe sometimes. And that is going to certainly influence your belief that God is good and just and will do good and justice in the world. Okay? And that might perhaps cause you to put your hope more into something else as a way to have hope in the world, right? Could be a political campaign, social action, whatever it is, that becomes the key for you for saving the world rather than God, as you might profess. And it's going to lead you to act like a lot of people in the world who also have a low view of injustice, who don't have a sense that there's a God who is working justice and good in the world and who are oftentimes largely cynical and without hope. Okay? That's just one example. Now, a good way to gauge if we've been Corinthianized or Americanized or Game of Thrones eyes or whatever is how we act towards the family of God. When we look at the community in Corinth, we see that in how they interacted with each other, their environment had shaped them quite a bit in how they saw themselves and how they saw each other and how they used the gifts they'd been given. All these different ways were influenced more by their culture than by the God who'd given all this stuff to them in the first place. Okay, so this is the burning room that Paul is walking back into. What is he supposed to do in that moment? What kind of letter do you write back to a church that is going through that? Well, surprisingly, we see this right off the bat, he doesn't actually respond by getting angry at them or shaming them. That's right away at the very beginning of the letter. Even though you can sense his frustration with them at times throughout the letter, that's not how he chooses to respond to them. He actually engages in a kind of positive reinforcement or encouragement towards them. Okay, so first off, if you remember what he said, he actually thanks God for them, okay? And what a great mindset when we're in conflict with someone or disappointed by them to frame how we're going to respond to them by first thanking God for them. I think it really can change how we go about um, uh, disagreements or, or conflicts with people, okay? And instead of making them feel bad for what they were up to, he actually encourages them to become what they already were, Okay? Because of Paul's convictions, he looked at them and he saw that they actually had everything they needed. They had the Spirit of God. They had other gifts as well that had been given to them by grace. And they had been set free from sin. Okay? These three things we talked about in our previous series. But their main problem was that they didn't, uh, it's not that they didn't have what they needed, but that they were making no effort to act like it. And they actually seemed hell-bent on living the opposite way. And so what Paul does right away, right away at the beginning of the letter is to refer to them as who they already were by, their, by what he sees as their deepest identity. And that's as God's holy people. Okay? 1 Corinthians 1-2. He says, I'm writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus. Okay, I want to talk about this idea about holiness 
for the rest of the sermon, okay? And how holiness is what Paul sees as their fundamental and deepest identity, okay? Think about that. He's speaking to their identity. He's speaking to this very deep part of them. Identity is what's behind our deepest fears, our deepest longings, our deepest hurts, oftentimes. We want to feel secure in some identity. We want to feel peace that because we have clarity on who we are, and we live in that in the day-to-day. A lot of people feel uh, issues when they, don't, when they feel some tension between what they're doing and what they think of it as their identity, or they're trying to discover their identity, okay? And it so often is how we, you know, think of ourselves as, is expressed in some identity, okay? Just think about the types of things that people can, like, think of themselves as primarily, and they struggle with, maybe they, they find things com- being combated within them, but they're wondering, which of the, you know, how do I live out this identity, right? You could think of your identity as the smart guy who always has something smart to say in every situation. You could think of your identity as the good mom or the good dad, the good wife, the good husband, Um, The one who knows how to have a good time. That's my identity. I'm the intrepid traveler, right? I've experienced the world. That's that's who I am. That's my identity. I'm the loyal one. Uh, Maybe I'm the one who embodies some family or culture. That's my identity. I actually think more and more we see uh, a lot of times people's identity is framed uh, not by what they're for, but actually what they're against. A kind of like, you know, not really for anything, but actually existing to just be angry at something else unfortunately, but that's really, I think, how a lot of people view their identity deep down. Paul wants to go to this level with the Corinthians, and so he addresses them by what he sees as their fundamental identity as holy people. He says, God made you holy, then called you holy. Okay, now, listen, if you are, you know, been listening to what I've been saying so far, or familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you're thinking, that seems very weird because they aren't acting particularly holy. Why would he call them that? Okay? What does it say about identity and holiness that God would still, or Paul would still refer to them as that, despite how they were living as a church community? And I think what this does is it shows us that holiness isn't about what we do, but it's an identity and calling that's given to us in grace by God. And this is what I mean when I say becoming who we are as being the big idea of 1 Corinthians. Now, I doubt, I doubt holiness is a word that you would use to root your identity as a follower, or just as a person. A lot of people don't think of themselves as, what's my identity? It's a holy person. That would seem very pretentious to say that, right? It would feel, uh, you know, you, you would think people would think, oh, I'm just being holier than thou. Like, I think I'm better than everybody else. That's probably why we wouldn't go there. And I actually think that probably shows we don't always have a good understanding of what holiness actually is, okay? It's true. Morality, being, you know, being good, being righteous is a, is a component of holiness. But I think to focus solely on that is to kind of go down the wrong path. When, we, when the Bible talks about God as holy, it's referring to his, his awe, his awesomeness, okay? It's true. God is like us. We are created in his image, But also, in many, many ways, God is very much unlike us. And holiness speaks to that part of him. He's very alien to human experience in so many ways. And that's really what holiness is getting at. In in, in different places in the Bible, you read accounts where people come into God's presence. and, And you read what it's like to enter his presence. And it reads like something out of an alien movie. Right? It reads like someone going to a different planet. Okay? It is so 
radically different than human experience. And that's actually a key component of holiness, right? And I think it actually can be helpful for us to think about alien movies a little bit when we're thinking about this idea. I don't know if you've ever watched, you know, a movie about aliens coming to Earth. And I'm not talking about like Independence Day, like a dumb action movie. I'm talking about like something where you're actually getting into the minds and experiences of people who, are, who would be meeting a brand new species from another planet, completely unlike them, completely unknown for the first time. Movies like Get You Into That Mindset, I think, are really, really interesting and also really helpful to understand this. Uh, one of, I think, the best movies that does this is, is a movie called Arrival. Have any of you guys seen this one? It's a fantastic movie. If you haven't seen the movie Arrival, I would highly, highly recommend you check it out. It came back out in like 2016. Okay, there's some pictures of, uh, 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 from the movie here. Okay, one is of that spaceship sitting there, just kind of looming over uh, the horizon. It just feels very different, like very, what is this thing? Okay, and the second image is actually of one of the main characters going into, uh, into the spacecraft where she meets the aliens for the first time. Now, that scene where she walks in to uh, the spacecraft and meets them for the first time, it, it's filled with this looming sense of terror, but also wonder and dread and awe and genuine curiosity about what am I about to experience here? Okay, I can't just Wikipedia these things because it's beyond human experience to know what is going to happen when I enter into this room. All right, and she experiences like everything about these aliens is unique. Okay, it's different. Even, and this is a big part of the movie, even the way that they communicate is so kind of beyond the way that humans think about it, that it is so set apart from us. And I think the mixture of those feelings gives, you know, something that's totally unlike what you're used to, okay? They don't understand what these aliens are capable of, and it creates this sort of awe that just hangs over the movie. And in Arrival, I think it's really, really well done. Now, these movies show us how people's um, uh, reorient, reorient everyone's priorities by coming into contact with them, okay? And the reason is because these aliens are so unlike us, so set apart from us, and we sense it in our bones and it hangs over at us that we have to th- kind of get our brains into a new space. I think God's holiness is like that. Or that's what we're supposed to be experiencing when we talk about God's holiness. That it's unlike anything we can truly understand in human experience to enter into his presence. He is so unlike us in ways that we can't even fathom. He is separate from us, distinct from us, set apart from us. Okay? That's what holiness is about. It's about God's uniqueness about the ways in which God is beyond us and set apart from us, okay? That's what holiness is. But what is it like when, when God comes to us? What is holiness about when God comes to us with his holiness, okay? Well, I think it looks like this, all right? Let me switch, uh, switch analogies here a little bit, okay? Imagine you have an old barrel, it's in uh, an alley, and a person walks through the alleyway. They notice it. it's just kind of sitting in the trash, it's, a, it's kind of jig and it's broken and weathered and it's, and it's just a piece of junk. That's whoever threw it out in the alleyway. That's what they think of it. Well, this person decides to pick it up and take it home with them. Well, what they do is they cut a piece out of it. They sand it down. They make it nice and smooth. They varnish it. They stain it a kind of brilliant red-brown and they have a brand new purpose in mind for this thing and that's to turn it into a beautiful centerpiece for their kitchen table. Okay? Now, think about how how 
this is the same piece of wood, but now it's become set apart. It's become distinct. It's been used for some other purpose than what it used to be for. It's not junk anymore. No one is allowed to call this thing junk, right? It's been rescued Despite it looking shoddy and useless, being thought of as junk by the original owner, it's been made clean. It's been repurposed and set apart for a good and noble use. It's always going to occupy the center of that whole dining room and kind of make that whole room special as a result. It will always be a reminder to those who see it of the craftsmanship, the care, the love of that person who found it and turned it into what it is to set it apart for this new purpose. I think the Corinthians, and us by extension, as people who follow Jesus, we are like that piece of wood. And the world and the sin that fails it does what it always does to us. It it fails to give any honor to it. It beats us up. It leaves us for dead. It cares very little for us. Paul's going to remind the Corinthian church just in just a little bit later after this. We'll get into this, you know, in a few weeks. But how they were nothing special before, you know, before Paul showed up to them when they heard the gospel. But God, through Jesus, cleans us up. He restores us and he sets us apart for himself and his noble purpose. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.11, But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, no matter what had been true of that piece of wood before, all that mattered about it now was that it was set apart, it was loved, it was adored by the maker. And that's how it is with us. That's what God does to us in the gospel. God's otherness, his set-apartness, his alien quality is transferred over to us and it's supposed to change us. Okay, and whatever, whatever was true of us before, okay, whatever we had an inordinate amount of that was in us before, we have been cleaned of that and set towards another purpose, set apart for it, okay? So holiness is about something being set apart, about becoming dedicated to God and, hit, and being set apart for his purpose and his glory. That's fundamentally what Paul is talking about here, okay? So what we want to talk about in this series, because it's what Paul's talking about to the Corinthians, is becoming who we are, holy people, holy people, The call of the Corinthians, the call to the Corinthians, I mean, and therefore to all who follow Jesus, is not that we must create our identity or discover it uh, or simply necessarily be true to ourselves in some way. Okay, that's how we talk about identity a lot of times now, I think. But what when we talk about identity in the Bible, we're talking about something that God has given to us. And the identity that God has given us is this: it's holy, set apart people, restored, people of his purpose, special to him loved by him. And so living into our identity of holiness means intentionally looking at our whole lives and asking the question, do I live like someone who is set apart and dedicated to God? Okay? Am I something that is in, in some ways at least alien to the world around me, that is set apart, that doesn't fit the categories that everything gets thrown into in the world that we live in? Okay? Christians are not supposed to be people who fit neatly into the prearranged categories of the world. We should actually feel set apart and different. We should feel some tension, right? And I think sometimes we can feel like that is a, a struggle for us. And actually, the better thing for us to do would to be to water down our weirdness in some way, right? To, to, to take that path with people because that would make our faith more attractive to them. Okay? We actually convince ourselves of becoming Corinthianized or whatever eyes is actually good practice. But that's not what God has called us 
to walk in by calling us holy people, okay? In reality, committing to holiness all the more is what's going to make us attractive and be able to use by God, okay? Because then we're going to be able to come to represent a whole world that is different to people. When we match the way we live with who we are, what we become is a billboard pointing to the reality of God's love, his grace, his power, and his hope. And so that's a call not to follow some, you know, r- you know, holy law code, okay? But it's more about making our minds holy, to change how we think, how we reason, how we have wisdom, which is uh, rooted in the wisdom of Jesus. Julie's going to talk about that more next week, okay? And so to be holy and set apart, we can't just unthinkingly mirror the culture around us. We can't become too Corinthianized or anythingized. Okay, that's actually the opposite of holiness, okay? Because when we, that happens, what we're doing is instead of mirroring God's holiness, his grace, his glory to the world around us, we're actually mirroring all of the rest of the world back towards God, where it's like a flashlight that is pointed the wrong direction, okay? And then that's the Corinthians problem. Now, it's easier said than done, I think, to live this out, and that's what we're going to really explore in this series here is the Corinthian church's struggles to live that out, to figure out what does it actually look like in our day-to-day lives to live this holy calling out, okay? It's, it's a challenge. It's something we have to wrestle with. It's something we have to have wisdom. We have to follow God in every single day, okay? And there's a lot of reasons that we could struggle with holiness, and I'd love for you to talk about that in your community groups this week, okay? But I think, you know, something that can happen is we can be afraid, of living into this. Maybe we fear failing, right? Maybe it feels like another burden or obligation to put on ourselves, okay? And I think the comfort that Paul offers the Corinthians when we really think about this greeting that he writes to them is this, that we can chase holiness without being perfect, okay? Because we've not earned God's grace. We've not been given this identity. We've not been made set apart by God by our own efforts. So we can't lose it by our failed efforts. That's not really how it works. It's not how we receive it in the first place. And that's not something we have to fear losing as a result. And this is something we see kind of throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians. as people who are failing to, to look like people that are holy, but who never, Paul never talks about as being in danger of losing this idea of being holy people. All he's doing is continually encouraging them and challenging them to live into it. And I think those two things are really important. At the end of the day, this is what 1 Corinthians is all about. Encouragement and challenge to live as holy people. The challenge is learning to line up how we live, how we think, how we reason, how we are known by others with who we already are as people who are set apart and dedicated to God. But the encouragement, the good news as we do this, is that God is the one who gives us this identity. And so because of that, Jesus is with us. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, he's our shepherd. He's walking with us. He's reminding us of his love and his power and his compassion. And that's part of what makes him holy are those things. And so when we engage in holiness, we're trying to look like Jesus. But that means that he continually walks with us in the day-to-day, making us more and more like him. So I'm excited to go through this, this book and really wrestle with the implications of what, it lo- what does it look like for us to be uh, people who are committed 
to holiness, who are, want to live into this identity that God has given us, his holy people, set apart, dedicated to him in all facets of our lives? I think this is such an important question for us to be asking ourselves constantly. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to pray now, um, and we're going to enter into a time of worship and some communion. Um, when we take communion, it's a reminder of what God has done to restore us, to set us apart, to make us holy. It, it included uh, him dying on a cross for us. This is part of the process for him to make us holy people. But now because of that sacrifice, we have a chance to live in that incredible holiness. Okay, So reflect on that as you take communion today. Ask yourself maybe throughout the, the songs, are, are there areas in my life in which I am to something else eyes. I can see that fruit coming out of me in some way. And, and God is calling me back to holiness, to dedicate myself, to be set apart for him and his purpose. That's something to just think about maybe today um, as, we, as we enter this time of worship. So let me pray for us here. Lord, we thank you that um, you, you give us your holiness. Lord, you set us apart and you make us um, who we are. You, 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 you give us this deep identity of holy people, God, freely as a gift in your grace. Um, we don't have to earn it. We don't have to have done something to be uh, the right type of people to get it, Lord. You just give it to us freely. I pray that as we meditate on that, God, that you would help us to know in our day-to-day lives, whatever it looks like, what, what it means for us to walk in that, to be holy people. In some ways, it will be similar for all of us. In some ways, it will be unique to all of us, depending on what it looks like, uh, you know, what the day-to-day life looks like for us. Either way, we pray for your wisdom through your spirit to help us to know how we can walk in that. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.